Section 54 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 31, Meyer, with many aliases, Part 1. The case of the people of the state of New York against Henry C.W. Meyer, with numerous aliases, was tried in the court of Oyer and Terminer, before Judge George C. Barrett and a jury, in December 1893. The charge was the murder by poisoning of Ludwig Brandt, who had been insured under the name of Gustav Heinrich Maria Joseph Baum in the following companies. Washington Life, $3,000. Mutual Life of New York, $3,500. New York Life, $1,000. Etna Life, $1,000. The beneficiary was Meyer's wife, who, in pursuance of fraudulent intent, went through the form of a marriage ceremony with Braum, according to the testimony of Reverend F. E. Werner of Chicago in February 1891, passing herself off as Emily Rather, the name of a niece of Meyer in Ovenstadt, Germany. Near the close of the trial, while the counsel were summing up the testimony, one of the jurors became insane. This unfortunate incident abruptly stopped the proceedings. A second trial took place in April and May 1894 in the Court of General Sessions before Record of Frederick Smith, and Meyer was convicted of murder in the second degree. The jury stood a long time, eleven to one, but the one juror obstinately held out against conviction in the first degree and the rest finally yielded to his dominating influence. Yet Recorder Smith's charge to the jury was strongly to the effect that it could not bring in any other verdict than murder in the first degree. The man who was thus placed behind prison bars, instead of being led to judicial execution and ignominiously yielding up a life which had several times in succession been forfeited, had occupied an unusual degree of attention on the part of the sensational newspaper reporter. Whole columns of leading papers had been filled with recitals of Meyer's plots and counterplots, his forgeries and marriages, his murderous plans and methods, his aliases and disguises and false personations, his skill in poisoning with antimony, his cold-blooded and brutal disregard of the lives of his victims, his dexterity in the management of accomplices, and the ingenious reinforcement of the principal confederate, the she-devil who passed as his wife. In the extended and comprehensive investigations, patiently and intelligently conducted on the part of the Mutual Life Insurance Company by the former manager of the Department of Medical Revision, Mr. D. G. Gillette and his associate, the present manager, 
Mr. H.G. Julian. It was learned that Meyer, in the course of his criminal career, had killed at least seven persons. Mary Kirchhoff, Henry Gelderman, Master Meyer, Baby Gelderman, G.H.M.J. Baum, the real Baum, Indiana Maggie, and Ludwig Brand, and that at least three escaped after he had commenced his poisoning operations. Mrs. Gelderman, Klaus Dressen, and Mary Nice. It was also learned that Meyer's schemes included robbery of others, as well as of the life companies. He was after a large estate in the Rhine region of Germany, of which the real Baum was the only heir. This fugitive and shiftless wanderer was the sole representative of a very wealthy family in Cologne, and Meyer's game was to impose upon the family his own wife, or reputed wife, Mary Dressen, and her child, as the widow and child of Baum, and thereby entitled to the inheritance. If he could prove collection of insurance money on Baum's life, it would go far toward establishing the question of identity and supporting the alleged widow's claim to the Cologne estate. One of the remarkable features of this case is the ingenuity with which for years Meyer eluded and baffled the detectives. At times he was audacious enough to return to the scene of his criminal operations and deceive the police who were trying to run him down by his very boldness and unconcerned demeanor. His favorite toxic weapons were antimony and croton oil, which he gave in small doses, repeated after brief intervals, continuously for weeks, so as to stimulate natural morbific conditions, and thereby throw dust into the eyes of physicians who were summoned in attendance. Meyer's biographers tell us that in 1893 he was 35 years of age, that he came from Minden, Prussia, that he graduated from the Homeopathic Medical College in Chicago in 1878, and that he practiced medicine for a period of 10 years on the north side of that city. His first wife died soon after he began the practice of medicine, under circumstances which many believe indicate that she was poisoned. Soon after this, he was tried for the murder by poison of a wealthy Northside grocer named Gelderman. He was acquitted, and soon after married Gelderman's widow, who was worth $30,000. Shortly after the marriage, he was charged with the murder of his wife's son. On this trial, he was also acquitted. Not long afterwards, his wife was found to be suffering from a wrecked constitution. Suspecting mischief, she left Meyer and procured a divorce, and she claims to this day that he attempted her life by poison. A little later, about the year 1888, he met and married his present wife, whose maiden name was Dressen. She was the daughter of a thrifty elderly German of the north side, Klaus Dressen, who had accumulated considerable property. One day it was discovered that the old gentleman's name had been forged to an application for a heavy life insurance in the Germania Company. It was easy enough to point to the forger. Meyer at once disappeared, but was traced to Denver, whence he was brought back, 
committed to jail, in due time tried for forgery, and, with the peculiar luck which invariably attended him, was acquitted. His brief incarceration in prison and certain parties he met there largely influenced and governed his subsequent career. From the opening address of Assistant District Attorney McIntyre, when the trial was resumed, April 26, 1894, and from the memoranda of Mr. Julian, we obtain the following details of his checkered course of life. In March 1890, a man was confined in the jails of Cook County, the county which embraces the city of Chicago, who was known as Carl Kerfel, afterwards as Carl Muller, and at another time as August Wummers. This man Muller, known also as Wummers and Kerfel, was charged by the United States authorities with violating the postal laws of the government. He personated a young woman, representing herself as desirous of obtaining a husband, and for that little pleasantry, in the way of correspondence, the post office authorities charged him with improperly using the mails. He was apprehended and thrown into the Cook County Jail. When the time came to hear the indictment, the records show that he pleaded guilty. Thereupon, the presiding judge of the federal court imposed upon him a sentence of one year in the Joliet prison. While Muller was confined in the Cook County Jail, awaiting sentence, certain other persons were thrown into that jail, among them a man known as Gustav Joseph Heinrich Marie Baum, to whom reference has already been made, also a professional thief known as Jack W. Gardner or Chicago Jack, also a man charged with an attempt to defraud some editors of Scandinavian journals, whose name was Ludwig Brand. Also Brand's relentless fate in the shape of Dr. Meyer. He and these kindred spirits met, and acquaintance soon ripened into intimacy. It is said by the Chicago police that Meyer and Gardner concocted a scheme by which they were to have Baum's life insured, then take him out in an open boat on Lake Michigan, ply him with whiskey doctored with nitroglycerin in quantity sufficient to produce symptoms similar to those of sunstroke, and they would then return to shore and get a physician to certify to death by sunstroke. One day Meyer asked his newly found friend Muller, What are you here for? Muller said in reply that he had violated the postal laws of the federal government, that he had advertised in Western newspapers that he was a beautiful young woman desirous of meeting a man who wished to engage in matrimony, and as a result of the advertisement, farmers in the far west communicated with him, that on receipt of their communications he would write that he would go to them, provided they would send means by which he could pay his railroad fare. And for that, the post office officials got after him and caused his arrest. He added that when brought to the bar to answer the indictment against him, he would plead guilty and ask for leniency at the hands of the court. Meyer then retorted, There is no money in such small business no money in impersonating a young woman and defrauding farmers out of paltry sums. But I can give you a scheme out of which you will make fabulous sums, 
And if you will join me in a scheme that I can suggest, the day will not be far distant when you will become possessed of a large amount of worldly goods. What is your scheme, asked Muller. Wise, admire, I want you to enter into a plan by which we can swindle the life insurance companies doing business in this city. They can easily be swindled if you follow my suggestions and take my advice. Well, Muller said, I can't do that just now. I am about to plead guilty, and I will be sentenced. Yes, replied Meyer, but your sentence will not be one of long duration, because, in consideration of the plea that you are going to enter, the court will be lenient with you. At all events, after you serve the sentence which the court may see fit to impose upon you, I will be in the city of Chicago again, practicing my profession. Look me up in the directory of that city. Come to see me, and we will talk the scheme over. Muller's sentence dated on the 1st of August, 1890. Simultaneously, Gustav Baum was sentenced for a period of one year in the Joliet prison, while Ludwig Brand was sentenced to a shorter term of imprisonment and discharged before the expiration of the terms which had been opposed upon Muller and Baum. Meanwhile, Meyer was released and left the prison in the month of May or June 1890. He returned to Chicago and there resumed the practice of his profession. But before reaching Chicago, he stopped for a brief period at a place called Ravenswood, a suburban annex of Chicago. Then he took a residence and an office at 331 Center Street, Chicago. From the time that he left prison to the 29th of May, 1891, Meyer did not see Karl Muller. He and his wife frequently visited the Joliet prison to see and talk with Gustav Baum, but they avoided seeing Muller. On the 29th of May, 1891, the latter's term was completed and he immediately returned to Chicago and went to 190 12th Street on the 5th of June, Muller looked up Meyer's address in the directory, found that he was living at 331 Center Street, called upon him there, told him that he had just been liberated from Joliet Prison and that he was in dire distress and needed money, being practically penniless. Meyer handed him some money for his immediate needs. Afterward, Muller called again at Meyer's office and returned the borrowed money. While there, Meyer said, Muller, what are you doing now? Nothing, said he. I am not doing anything. Meyer asked, Are you still willing to go into a scheme with me to defraud life insurance companies? Muller replied that he had just got out of a difficulty and was not desirous of again putting his neck in the halter. That if Meyer had a swindling scheme on hand, he would rather not take part in it. One day in the following month, Meyer called on Muller at his room in 12th Street, and asked him what he was doing to make a living. Muller replied, I am working about houses of ill repute. I am a musician. I am playing the piano in houses of that character. But there is no money in that, said Meyer. Why don't you join me and enter into a scheme by which we can defraud life insurance companies? And I will promise and guarantee that you will make money that will take you far from the poverty line. 
What is your scheme, said Muller. Simple enough, was the answer. As I said to you in the Cook County Jail, life insurance companies could easily be deceived and easily defrauded. I will get someone to go and have his life insured. I will have the policies written on his life. I will ultimately get control of these policies. I will make it appear that the subject described in the policies has died. And then we will go and collect the money due on the policies, and you and I will divide it. Muller said, No, that won't do, Dr. Meyer. The insurance companies will discover that scheme. They will want some identification of the person who died. They will require the certificate of some physician. No, no, that scheme will never go. Well, I have other ways, said Meyer. I have methods by which I can deceive any life insurance company. And he added that he would unravel his plans at some future interview. Muller removed to Fourth Avenue, and one night while walking in Lincoln Park, he met a woman named Lena Kaufman. They walked together to the house of Meyer, and Muller introduced Lena Kaufman to Meyer. A conversation ensued about conspiracies to defraud life insurance companies, during which Ludwig Brand appeared. Do you remember that man? asked Meyer. Why, that is Brandt. He was in jail with us. Muller looked at him steadily and said, Yes, I remember him. Well, said Meyer, that man will do anything I tell him to do. Off and on, he resides with me. I maintain him, I care for him, I support him. He is devil-may-care in his habits. He is no good to me. He did not acknowledge then that he was about to insure Ludwig Brand. Brandt, by the way, was a Norwegian of good family who had come to this country seven or eight years before. He was a man of considerable ability and had been a reporter on a Norwegian paper in the city of New York. He was recklessly indiscreet and addicted to faults and follies which eventually cost him his place. He drifted westward and in the course of time took up with Meyer. He was remarkable for physical vigor, but his mind was completely under the magnetic or hypnotic control of the master. Dr. and Mrs. Meyer knew that Brandt was infatuated with Mrs. Meyer and that he would do anything at her command or to please her. After the meeting at which Lena Kaufman was present and Brandt not far away, Meyer and Muller had frequent consultations at 157 Randolph Street. One day the former inquired whether Muller had seen Baum while in the Cook County Jail. Muller said no. He was kept in one part of the prison and I was confined in another. We never had an opportunity to communicate together. But just before I was about to go, I did see Baum for an instant. How did he look to you? How was his apparent health? Did he seem physically strong, or did he look weak? Oh, said Muller, he looks sickly and weak. True, said Meyer, because when I and my wife visited him in Joliet, we noticed that he was in a weakly condition. Do you think he is going to live long? I can't tell, said Muller, and they parted. In the month of August, the couple met again, and Meyer said, Muller, Gustav Baum is in trouble again. He went to Cincinnati and there committed a forgery, and he is held under that charge. Well, what of that, said Muller. 
Why, I must go and get him out of the scrape if I can, said Meyer. I will go and see Gustav Braum in the Cincinnati jail and try to liberate him. I will have Ludwig Brandt insured in New York companies under the name of Gustav Heinrich Joseph Marie Baum. I will go and talk with Baum and find out from him all about his birth and antecedents and the genealogy of his family. Having his family record, no insurance company can get on to my scheme. Meyer, accordingly, in company with his wife, went to Cincinnati and had an interview in the jail with Baum. He interrogated Baum concerning his family history, ascertained when and where he was born, where he had lived, etc. On his return to Chicago, he interviewed Muller and said, Now the time is ripe. I am going to Europe. I am going to possess myself of certain evidences, so that when the time comes to defraud the insurance companies, I will be so fortified that there will be no room for doubt. After serving his term in the jail at Cincinnati, Baum, according to one report, went to the city of Mexico, and, as a usual outcome of his moral obliquity, was apprehended for the commission of some crime. According to another statement, he was taken by Meyer to Detroit, where he died of consumption. Be these statements as they may, it is certain that from that time, the latter part of August 1891, to the present, Gustav Heinrich Joseph Marie Baum has never been seen or heard from. All trace of his whereabouts was lost, and the detectives long ago gave up for the search. When Meyer announced Baum's arrest in the city of Mexico to Muller, he said, Now that he is out of the way, I am going to Germany to see his parents, and I am going to tell them that he committed murder in one of the western states. I have learned that some day he will be possessed of a million marks. His family, I know from what Baum told me, are very wealthy, and I am going to work on their feelings and get some of their money. I will tell them I have influence to get him out of jail if they will pay 10,000 marks. On the 5th of the following month, September, Meyer and his wife sailed from New York to Rotterdam and thence took train to Cologne. He found the family of Baum, told them that the son had been convicted of murder and attempted by various tricks and devices to get money from them. This part of the story was told on the witness stand by a man who sailed on the same vessel with Meyer, a man with whom he became intimate, whom he took into his confidence, and whom he asked to aid him in the criminal course that he was about to pursue, even to the corroboration of his statement to the Baum family that the son was in prison on the charge of murder. His conduct must have been insufferably offensive, according to letters from the agent of the Mutual Life of Cologne and Mr. Gustav Baum of that city. He was driven out of Cologne and was obliged to leave hastily and by stealth. He took the first steamer back to America, and when he reached New York, he was so impecunious that he pawned his watch in order to pay his car fare to Chicago. End of Section 54